The International Association for Near-Death Studies presents NDE Radio, a weekly exploration of near-death experiences and similar encounters with the other side. Now, here's your host, Lee Whitting. Welcome to NDE Radio, brought to you by IANS, the International Association for Near-Death Studies. I'm your host, Lee Whitting. The contents of this show will be different from most, as our near-death experiencer will attest to today. As politics and religion have become more polarized as a result of Trump's election a year ago, the dirty underbelly of true behavior is emerging out of all the lies and posturing. It seems that men are becoming more transparent concerning their violence toward women and children and their predatory sexual impulses. Rapists and child abusers were becoming culturally comfortable with their cruel behavior, and Trump's own admissions of his sexual exploits outside of marriage uh, made other men more overt in their behavior. Well, hey, they thought if the president can boast of his predatory grabbing of women's body parts and sexual references concerning his own daughter, then why can't all sexual perverts do the same? But here's the good news. This ugly candor is being melt, met with force, the force of women finally brave enough to stop sex violence in its tracks. The charges against millionaires running Fox News and alleged rapist Harvey uh, Weinstein are the beginning rock slide of an earthquake that promises to change the sexual abuse of men against women and children. Of course, not all sex abusers are millionaires and billionaires like uh, Harvey Weinstein, Bill O'Reilly, and Donald Trump. This sickness is spread throughout the culture, as our guest today can truly attest. When Peggy Robinson appeared on our show um, on November 21st, 2016, she described her NDE as a fight with God to return to her family. What listeners didn't know about then, nor did I till I read her book, was the almost constant violence and sexual abuse Peggy suffered through her childhood and through part of her adult life as well. If I'd known last November what I know now, I would have asked her one question. Why would you argue with God to return to the horrible life you were living on Earth? Well, Peggy, welcome back to NDE Radio. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi. Early in your, in your book, you you wrote, as you were sitting in your crib, uh, you were telling God he'd made a mistake that you were sent to the wrong family. And it doesn't take too many pages in to, to think that you were absolutely correct in that. Um, uh, Peg, let's start with, a, a just a quick review of the, uh, of your, um, the story of your death while you were miscarrying in, uh, during an ectopic pregnancy. Okay. Um, it was 1986. I was 25 years old. I had three little boys at home and I was pregnant for twins. I was two months. And I've had pain for a week, and my doctor assured me every other day when I called and told him something's wrong, he assured me that everything was fine. He had done an ultrasound. Both babies were in their uterus. It was not a tubal pregnancy. Uh, when the pain got so bad by the end of the week and I started bleeding, my husband took me uh, to the hospital, and he signed uh, papers, and nurse was pushing me down the hall. And I thought, I'm going to throw up, or now I feel like I'm going to pass out. And I felt my head start to drop, and I wanted to reach for the bow in my lap, and I couldn't get a hold of it because my hands wouldn't move off the armrest. I had lost contact with my body. And next thing I knew, oh, gosh, I'm passing out. 
But what happened, like you just click your, click your fingers that quick, I was shot like a rocket up through space. The noise, the vibration was so loud, and I knew instantly I had died because what else would you think? You know, all of a sudden you're sitting in a chair in a hospital sick, and then wham, you're shot through space, and it seemed like a tunnel because it seemed like a tight space mm. I was in. And it was real loud, bumpy ride, straight up, and I thought, oh, gosh. You know, I already started thinking right away about running away because I thought, i got to get back to my kids. And I thought, gosh, I'm so far out in space, I'll never find my way back. And then all of a sudden, everything stopped, the noise, the bumpy ride, and I am suspended in complete quiet and a bright white. I look around, and I can't see me. I look all around, up, down, middle, everywhere is bright light. And I think, okay, this must be heaven. What else would it be? And I'm alone. And I thought, what did I do wrong that I would be alone for, am I going to be alone for eternity? And then I looked up to my, sort of to the right in front of me, and I seen like an outline, a panel of people. And I thought, oh, I'm not alone. There's somebody. And I kept squinting my eyes, you know, like you think you have eyes. And I see, I'm trying to focus better. Like, who's there? And then my eyes are scanning, trying to focus, and I see an outline of a being just the same as a same outline sitting up front and center of these, this group of people. And I thought, okay, I got a complaint department. And I started screaming, you know, I won't go. I have kids to raise. I am not going to leave them down there. You know, I was abused my whole life, and I'm not going to leave my kids to have anything, one thing even that happened to me happen to them. And then to my left. I saw like this little vision, like a, a scenario of this child screaming, throwing a tantrum, and it seemed like a store, like they were checking out. And this mother and father stayed very calm and quiet and um, didn't get upset. Just, no, you can't have this for this child. Well, that showed me, that's how I was acting. I was acting like a spoiled child, you know, screaming, demanding what I want, and I want it now, and that I needed to humble myself before God, you know, like I had some sense, and so I did. I humbled myself before God, and I said, I know you're omniscient. I know you can see into the future. If you see in the future, and my kids would be better off without me, I'll say, but if for some reason, no matter what reason, they'd be better off if I was with them, then I begged to return, and then I saw some other kind of image, not in this white place anymore, but like I was above the trailer, looking down, and I felt that must be Jesus. There was a man there with me, and we were just kind of hovering over top the trailer, but it would be like at night, but there's no roof, and I could see down to my three little boys, and it must have been in the present, because they were mourning my death, and my youngest son, Jeremy, is very sensitive, and he was telling his brothers, I don't care if you say mom is dead. I want her back, and I want her back right now. And I felt his pain so hard inside me that I crumbled. And now I am back in heaven and in the, in front of this panel, but I believe I am crumbled at the feet of Jesus. And I am sobbing because I know now it's not God's fault I'm here, it's mine. I had my kids reversed, I had them. Um, repaired, and then I had 5% extra chance to do a pregnancy, and I got that 5%. I knew I had to do a pregnancy. I knew the twins were going to die or were dead. Didn't know. But I knew there's no hope for them. I thought I was gone. This was it. This was my time. Mm. And so 
I I was like bawling, sobbing at Jesus' feet, and I tried, because I'm bawling so hard, I tried to look up, and my hands start to come up, and I start to look up as if I'm on the floor crumbled, and I, and I cry out, like as a second thought now, who else will teach them about you? And then I, I left this part out before because I didn't really understand, but for a brief second, I think I'm at the fluorescent lights in the healing hallway of the emergency room. But then I am back in the back in the wheelchair. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I have back is my hearing. I hear that the nurse is pushing me in the wheelchair is now talking to another nurse. And I'm thinking, she don't even know her patient just died. She was too busy talking to know that I died. And mm-hmm. then I felt feeling on my hands on the armrest come back. And then I felt like a wave of warmth go down through my body. And then when I felt my feet on the footrest, I knew I was back. And my first thought was, what the hell was that? (laughs) (laughs) Because I was just dead in heaven and accepting it. And now I'm back. And, you know, this was 1986. I had never heard of such a thing. And no way was I going to tell this and be sent to the psych ward because if I was, nobody would get to the bottom of what was wrong with me medically. And I felt like I only had a short amount of time to get my doctor to understand this is serious, this is life or death here, and take me seriously. I felt I only had a little bit of time to, you know, like a second chance. Like, okay, God, like, here it is. You know, sink or swim. See if you can make it. That's the way I felt. Right. Because I knew but, whatever was wrong wasn't fixed. But, of course, you, you'd already been given a second chance because God saw fit to send you back. You talked him into it, as it were. Yeah. I, I, uh, your story, <laughs> told so matter-of-factly in the will to, uh, uh, um, of a wildflower, it's it's one of an incredibly dysfunctional family with rape and incest and racism and pain and longing and your own self-blame and guilt as if everything that went wrong all the time was your fault. And um, so did you... Well, I, I can believe that you would want to save your your three boys from that same fate, and that would be a tremendous impulse to take you back. But wasn't there a, even a moment's um, wish that you could just stay in the light with God and, and Jesus? No. Um, I, I was just shown this light, you know. All mm-hmm. I cared about was my kids. That was it. It wasn't about me. Now, yeah. um, next morning, you know, by the, they kept me overnight, even though the doctor examined me and said, there's nothing wrong. I don't know why you want to, why you keep saying something's wrong. It's not tubal. And I, I refused to go home or I knew I'd go home and die. I would die the next day if he sent me home. I just knew it. Yeah. Even yeah. though I couldn't tell anybody why. But so the next day when they, you know, did the, um, um, ultrasound and they found the you know, internal bleeding and they rushed me into surgery, um, then, when they sent me upstairs to sign my organs away, then it was about me. Then yeah. I was selfish. I'm 25. I'm pretty, damn it. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and it should, I shouldn't die right now. I had yeah. all the selfishness as a human being then mm-hmm. about my life. Now, during, during your life and during all this suffering, I mean, it's amazing. Under these same circumstances, I think many people would have killed themselves. And I know you contemplated it a couple of times. 
your uh you mentioned that your grandmother was half American Indian and I was wondering do you think that you had some some of the visions you had you you saw an angel at one point in time uh when you nearly drowned and do you think that some of that might have come from her tradition as well as from your own Christian tradition No um I had never heard anything like that um I mean we went to Sunday school and you just hear what you hear in Sunday school. We weren't even allowed to go in the big church, usually, with the whole group. It was just like pre-Sunday school stuff. You know, color, mm-hmm. sing some songs, hear some little stories, you know, something. It was nothing that I'd ever heard. It just happened when I was, and it's ironic when I'm sitting here talking to you, I am, I can almost see the pond where I'm at, where I mm-hmm. drown. I'm, I'm seeing that close right now. Um but when the angel appeared, you know, at first it was just her voice, you know, not seeing her. I just was thinking, which way am I going to go? I'm going to go right towards Belfreach, like a left towards Marietta. You know, I can do anything I want now. I could hover above this pond. You know, apparently I could fly, so where should I go? And then I heard, did not see, but I heard a woman's voice in front of me in the air, a little distance away, don't go yet. If they find you soon, you might go back. Yeah. So I thought, what is she talking about? Go back. That's not <laughs> how death works. <laughs> <laughs> you were five years old at this point, right? Yeah. <laughs> and your and your brother, you were you were out in the middle of the pond because you have found a board to paddle on, and your brother Jack comes and takes the board away, leaving you to drown. Although he probably didn't intend for you to drown, but I mean, uh, th- this is such a thoughtless family that you were caught up in. And you mentioned somewhere in the book that um, you had a you had you saw a family maybe just down the street and you had this impulse that maybe that was the family you were supposed to have been born in because they were all getting along so well. You think that possibly uh, God made a mistake in putting you in the family you were in? See that memory about since the wrong family that has just never left. That is my earliest memory of sitting there in a baby bed and having that moment. I am sitting there talking to God just like it is nothing unusual at all. I don't hear him or anything. I'm just, you know, rattling away in my mind. Very clear conversation. Hey, you sent mm-hmm. me the wrong family. Um, <laughs> and there was just silence. I thought, gosh, I'm just stuck here. I'm all alone. So then later when I saw that family playing in the yard a little bit after my drowning was little, and I jumped up out of the back seat and I looked at the back glass and I felt, I have played with that family. I feel I belong to them. I just want to get out of this car and get run with them. Honestly, now that I've wrote my book and I've had time to really, really process and think about things, I always wonder if when I hovered over that pond when I drowned and I thought about going right or I thought about going left, I wonder because it felt like at moments when I remember that I did, even though I never left above that pond, there's this feeling that I did go, that I have memories of just floating down this highway. Yeah. And maybe I, it's blocked from my memory that I did go looking for other kids to play with, like I had thought about. And I did run around in yards with kids, or I did go in and out of houses, because I have mm-hmm. the strangest memories down that street where those kids were playing, and right down the street my grandma, where I was after this drowning and stuff happened, I would stand outside my grandma's house and look at houses, as weird as I know this sounds. As a little child, I thought, 
I should just be able to go in there and flow in and out of these houses and see what's in there. Mm. Why am I feeling this way? I can't, I'm not allowed to do that. And I would just stand there in this lost space thinking, I remember doing that. But then the other side of my head is saying, you cannot do that. You did not do it. I'm like, but it feels so familiar. So that's what, honestly, that's the conclusion I've come to. I think I was yeah. in several places at once over the pond. You you said you thought about um, finding some ghost kids to play with in your book. Yeah, that's what I wanted. When I hovered over the pond, I thought, well, you know, what do I do now? I'm a ghost, and I'm <laughs> dead, and I'm still here. So at first I thought about old people. And I thought, well, no, I'm a kid, so got to be kids around here. Kids I do sometimes. I'll go find some kids to play with. Because I was on the other side. I thought this was it. I didn't think people went back or anything. I thought this must be what death is. It's yeah. pretty cool. Yeah. There are some happy moments in your book, not too many of them for sure, but <laughs> one of them was uh, when you when you were singing Jesus Loves Me in Sunday school and uh, and the kids complained, but the teacher said just to, to go for it. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, and I'm right next door to that church where I'm sitting right now, too. It's weird. Um, I, we went into Sunday school, and there was a closet that was, Sunday school teacher opened up, and there was stacks of papers, and she said, pick out a coloring page and go sit down. And when I walked over, I started having, of course, all these things happened right after I drowned. I wasn't this weird kid my whole life. It was just just a little while. And I pulled out a picture, and I seen it was of Jesus sitting on a big rock with children standing by his side. Like, And one, and it was seemed like, and one was sitting on his lap, and it seemed like it, I I remember instinctively when I saw that picture, this is it, this is it, this is the one. Like, I was meant to find this. It was a strange five-year-old experience. And when I started (laughs) coloring, it's like I got so into it. I started singing Jesus Loves Me over and over, louder and louder. And before I knew it, it felt like I was actually, I see the picture of me standing there in front of Jesus waiting my turn. And I wanted to push that kid off his lap because I want, I could not wait to sit on his lap. I could, when I'm standing there, I could feel his love. And even though it didn't say it on the page, which I thought I couldn't read anyway, I, something informed me as I'm doing this, seeing Jesus there with the kids, something informed me, just like when I drowned, things would inform me of information. Something informed me. Jesus loves children of every color. Never forget that. Mm. And that was like a stamp put in my soul the rest of my life. There's a, a famous story about a, a well-known theologian who was asked uh, this, this profound question, what's the, what's the deepest uh, theological um, question that you've encountered? And he quotes that song, Jesus loves me, this I know because the Bible tells me so. And uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a wonderful song, powerful song. You um, somewhere in your book, and I um, you and I wrote this down because I thought this was important. Uh, you say it was the just the and, and this is after incredible suffering that you've gone through in all forms. It was just the way life was. I couldn't stop loving someone no matter what they did to me. That is uh, almost supernatural. 
I, I wonder, well, you know, do you, do you, like because, <laughs> they, I mean, that, that, uh, there were some pl- places in the book where you just couldn't forgive. And, and it's certainly understandable given what happened to you. But, um, but that, I thought that phrase, was it about Tanya? I can't remember. Yeah. 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 You know, that, that you just, no matter, and, and there was a lot of cruelty, you know, before and after that point in your life but still the fact that um you were you made that kind of commitment it almost you know i don't know if you've ever thought about reincarnation but it almost sounds like you were dealing with these people un- under other circumstances and maybe another life and and so there was a deep commitment to even to the people who were hurting you i i don't know um you know i say it has felt like a curse to continue loving and loving when someone has clearly showed you they would just assume you die. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I would rather be like that than hold hate or resentment. So. Mm. Well, there was threats against others in this family. I mean, there was that rat poison incident where they were going to poison Don and and uh, business about jumping off the bridge, trying to that was urging you to jump off the bridge, wasn't it, to drown yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So, so, I mean, my gosh, you know, that, that there was no, it's like there was no line they weren't willing to cross in terms of, um, sexual, uh, uh, abuse, physical abuse, beatings, um, incest. I mean, it was just, uh, people need to read this book as, as, Difficult and as painful as it is because it tells a lot about, uh, it uncovers a lot about what we don't talk about in society or what we never used to talk about in society. But it's there and it wasn't just your family, that's for sure. So, um, I think, and, and my introduction was implying this, that women, including you, are now getting the bravery and the, and the, the courage to, to tell the truth, you know? And, uh, tell the, what is it? Tell the truth and shame the devil, uh, and get men off your backs because there's an awful lot of this that is, I'm sure, still going on. Yeah. And, you know, that's what I was trying to do before I wrote the book. Stop thinking about it. Stop mm. having PTSD. Stop those memories. Just stop. Nobody wanted to hear my story anymore. They've already heard it a hundred times. The people that did the things knew they happened. They knew, but it's in the past. We don't hear it no more. And so I'm just supposed to swallow it all and and go on about my life. And so I wrote it all down, a bunch of notebooks one day, and I thought, I'm going to write it all down. I'm going to get it out of me. I'm going to stick it in a drawer, and it's going to be gone because I am tired of having PTSD. The next morning I woke up, and I looked at this notebook, and I thought, I feel just as bad. I thought, it won. Everybody that ever hurt me won. Fine. There's no such thing as justice. This is my life. Accept it. So I picked up the notebook. I picked up the first one. And I started reading, uh, blah, blah, blah. You know, my stupid, horrible life that nobody cares about. And what happened was, all of a sudden, all the bad stuff got pushed, like, to the left. And all I could see now was the spiritual stuff. And I realized I had been putting the good and the bad under the rug just the same. And it was like all the good stuff started begging for me to pay attention. Like, 
okay, what about you stand there wanting to sit on Jesus' lap? What about this angel that appeared after I drowned? Then I saw her after I drowned. Um, I knew these things. Memories were just as real as the abuse and everything else. They were just as real, but I always pushed everything out of the way. And I thought, forget all that bad. Let's look at this good. Let's start examining that. And when I did that, it felt like everything lit up, like all the dark went away and everything started lighting up. And I've been walking on air ever since. And this was over a year ago. Hmm. I got rid of the PTSD in that moment. Wow. Has your family, uh, family members read your book? I don't know. So you have, uh, haven't had any feedback from them, as it were. As I, my mom heard I was writing a book, and she, of course, had never read it or asked me what was in it. But she said oh, right off the bat, "Well, I bet I sound like Mother of the Year." And she said, "I will look <laughs> for it in the fiction section, and even if it is published, it will never be a bestseller." <laughs> Which <laughs> my book was never about that. My book was um, just going to be for me to pass down to my grandchildren after I die. That's what my book was for when I wrote it. And by the time I was getting finished with it, um, a friend of mine asked me if I wanted to send it to her publisher. And I thought, gosh, I'm a horrible writer. I'm bad at spelling. I don't, you know, writing is always more subject. And, and so, okay, so I called him. Um, Rodney Charles, First World Publishing, a former monk. And he said, well, go ahead and email it to me. And I said, well, I'm not sure if it's worthy. And he said, it's worthy because you are worthy. And he's had my heart ever since. (laughs) 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 I thought that was the nicest thing to say to someone you don't even know. So I sent it to him, and a couple months went by, and he got back with me, and he absolutely loved it. He said, but it needs deep, deep cleaning. I need a lot of editing work done. So mm-hmm. I spent all summer with a wonderful editor, editor in Parkersburg, West Virginia, Sandy Tritt, Inspiration for Writers. And she was a godsend. And I made sure, no ghost writing, nothing. This has to be truthful, factual words. I just need it cleaned up, you know, where it's not a mess. That's all. And so it stayed true to my words 100%. And so we got that done, and um, so it got published. Did she suggest eliminating some of the abuse stories or not? Uh, There was only one, and I was skeptical and putting it in when I wrote it, and so I took it out right away when she just, just suggested it. There, I mean, there's some powerful stuff in there, which, well, for instance, is it your uncle's friend's? fingering you as a child, uh, passing you around from person to person. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it's just terrible what you, what you went through. And I asked my mom about that a couple of years ago. And I asked her, what house, you know, did we go to that night after that happened? Where, oh, I can tell exactly where they live and whose house it was. And, um, I asked her questions about that and she said, well, you should have screamed. Those kids would have screamed. There are times when you screamed and it didn't do you any good. I mean, well, I, I was five. I was just going yeah. in my room, go to bed. You know, it was dark. I, I, and, know. Uh, I didn't know what was going on. I didn't have time. It happened so fast. You get passed around like you're a show and tell. 
And so, yeah. and I tried squirming to get down, but I thought, put the blame on a five-year-old child that I should have done something differently. Did you, uh, did you, did you find, did at any point in your life, did you find that it was impossible for you to trust any men or, or boys your age? I mean, did you just, were you automatically wary of them all? I don't think I was, um, like, leery of them all, but leery of situation. I yeah. wouldn't allow myself in a situation. Or I, wa- I also watch people's eyes and their motives, their emotions, very cautious. Even to this day, I can pick out a creep in out of a crowded room. Mm. Uh, and yet you wa- you wound up with you wound up with so many creeps. Um, <laughs> it's it was almost like no matter which way you turned, you were running into some ass, <laughs> you know, <laughs> who who had the worst intentions for you. Well, uh, my husband and I celebrated our 20th wedding anniversary yesterday. He's my second oh, marriage. Congratulations. So that's the one I had was the twin, so not him, but that was 16 years and a long time ago. But, um, yeah, when I was 18 and I got with my first husband, uh, you know, my parents had kicked me out. I was living in my car. I had a dog. And I got pregnant a month mm. out of high school. And back then, you know, you took up to the plate with your responsibilities and we both did and you know I don't hold any you know animosity against him now um, he fathered my children and you know grandfather my grandchildren as my husband is now so um, so I think his family are probably reading this right now <laughs> so <laughs> that should be interesting <laughs> I'm sure it will be and there was one other question. We're just about out of time, but I wanted to ask you. You protected um, a black man who you could have charged, you know, with a crime. Uh, and it wasn't probably um, all that natural for you not to have been a racist because you were surrounding, surrounded by racists. And yet you had an instinctive feeling that 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 was an unfair situation and you would be jeopardizing his future by telling the truth so you protected him even though you got later got blamed for, for you know with a lot of racist slurs and so forth what well, uh, the, I, I told the truth to the caseworkers and the police the next morning as soon as I got away from him mm-hmm. uh, you know of course I didn't tell how I left my body and stuff you know so and I right. didn't understand that because I didn't scream and fight and hit him in the head with something that you know, that wasn't, I didn't consent, but I didn't under, really understand that. Um, but right. they well, charged him with, um, what did they charge back then? Uh, uh, you know, when the girls are old enough to consent. That's, that's consent. Uh, yes. He got charged with that, yeah. Okay. Did he go to prison? He got, uh. No, he just got told to stay away from me. But my family, yeah, they thought what they wanted, and I didn't tell them any different. It was no use to try to talk sense into those idiots. Well, they, I mean, they blew it out of all proportion and talked about, you know, oh, well, I'll let the folks read your book. <laughs> tell tell, uh, tell the audience how they can get a copy of your book, Peggy. Um, I know it's on Amazon. Uh, it's on Barnes & Noble. It's on Books A Million, I know. Uh, okay. 
Well, it's it should will, be uh, will of a wildflower. The will of a wildflower. Your nickname when you were a kid, and it's a it's a perfect nickname for you, or at least it was back then. We're out of time, Peggy, but thank you so much for sharing your experiences um, with our listeners. If the folks would like to listen again to this or any of our past shows, just go to our website at nderadio.org. And for more information about IANS, go to their website at iands.org. And tune in next Monday, 11 a.m. Eastern, for more NDE Radio. This is Lee Whitting saying thanks for listening.